If you'd open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 8. It would be fun to spend a few months in Romans chapter 8. It would be fun to spend a few months in Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. But we've got to move a little quicker than that. Nevertheless, the section before us this morning is just so rich and wonderful and worth our attention. Um, Going back to chapter 5, you'll remember that it began, therefore, uh, having peace with God through Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to unfold what it means to be able to stand in the grace that's been given to us, which then moves into chapter 6, that because we've received this standing with God, we are freed from the yoke of bondage to sin. Not that sin isn't there, but that we're not required to serve it anymore as we used to. And then moving us into chapter 7, that we're free from the condemnation of the law. And we have this great freedom, again, not that the law isn't there, but that it can no longer condemn us, even though it exposes our sin. And then in chapter 8, building to this crescendo, that the whole of the Christian life then centers in this reality that we have been become the recipients of the Holy Spirit because of Christ. In fact, that is the nature of the Christian life. It's a life lived in the Spirit, and often the Holy Spirit is neglected in our uh, concentration on what it means to live and walk with Him. And so far, we've seen in the beginning of the chapter, in verses 1 through 11, that life in the Spirit, when we've been made alive in the Spirit, as He comes and indwells His people, the first thing we run into is that we are alive to the battle, to the war this raging conflict because we still have sin in us and we're, we're fighting with it and we're striving for the mastery over it at all times. And then in verses 12 through 17, we saw that we're also led by the Spirit, that He leads us into God's agenda and away from our own to stop thinking about it only in terms of, of who we are and what we do, but, but what is God about? What is He doing in the universe and how do we factor into it? I've mentioned before that many in our day are striving all the time to make the, the Bible, the Word of God, relevant to people. But the, but the ultimate question is, are we relevant to God? He's got an eternal plan, and He's about that. It's being unfolded. Where do we stand in relationship to that? It's not whether or not God is relevant to me. It's whether or not I'm relevant to Him. Of course He's relevant. And, and I need to find out where He is. And the Spirit prompts and leads and draws us along to think in those terms, to live in those terms. And that then brings us to verses 18 through 30. What it looks like to be living through the Spirit. Four pillars that he gives us here uh, as he unfolds what this life really looks like experientially for the believer. And so let's go back and pick up in verse 18. Actually, the first portion here, 18 through 21, will say for those who want to fill in the blanks that he reveals the hope of glory. This is the work of the Spirit to us, that he reveals the hope of glory. And so he begins, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And some will look back and say, Yeah, sure. But you don't know what I'm suffering. And you're right, I don't. But he does. He does. He knows what it is to be completely and absolutely forsaken by those that are closest to Him. The Gospel narrative tells us of a time when Jesus was preaching in His own house in Capernaum. And as He was preaching and teaching there, the people so crowded into the house that He didn't have time to eat or to sleep. And that his own mother and his brothers 
stood outside and they, the, the narrative says that they came to him because they thought he had lost his mind. Mary, who had heard the angels, who had been miraculously caused to give birth to this child, Mary, and his brothers thought he had lost his mind. You've been in that situation, misunderstood by even those that are closest to you. Maybe you're there right now, today. You say, how is it that those who know still don't get it? He understands that. He's been right there. He knows what it is to have people that he draws close to him in real intimacy for three and a half years to eat with them and sleep with them and travel with them, to give them a supernatural anointing so that they can go and preach the gospel and go into villages and heal the sick and raise the dead, and to have one of them who he trusts with the treasury in the last night betray him to his death for a stinking 30 pieces of silver. You've been sold out? Somebody betrayed you and you think you should never get over that hurt? Never let go of that bitterness? My Savior knows what it is. Your Savior knows what it is to feel that. To live that to the point of death. You say, but things in my life... There has been senseless, needless, foolish pain. Yeah, he knows that. He knows what it is to have John the Baptist, his elder cousin, by six months. The only person on the planet who really got it, who really understood, who stood at the River Jordan and said, Behold, that's the Lamb of God. He takes away the sins of the world. He's the one. The Spirit's revealed it to me. I know who He is. And only a short time later to have that man brutally murdered, his head hacked off because of a 16-year-old girl doing, doing a lurid dance in front of a spineless politician who wanted to please his wife more than do what was right. And it didn't make sense. It was empty. And we look from the outside and say, how can such a, a grotesque thing happen? And maybe, maybe you're wondering about the senselessness of something you've been through. And my Savior says, yeah, I, boy, where did I go after that? I went up on the mountain and I prayed all night until I was able to walk on water to meet my disciples again. What a picture of how the burden had lifted, huh? What about, what about your physical condition? Weak, weary, diseased. He knew what it was to be so tired that he had to sleep on the pillow of a boat and he was so exhausted that even though the boat was in the midst of a storm that threatened to kill them all, he didn't wake up. He's been exhausted. And I doubt that few of us here have ever suffered the physical punishment he did in those last days. I did talk with someone just a short time ago who, who was able to show me the scars from the beatings from their professed born-again father when he used the board with the nail in it. And even though they're in their 50s, those scars are still present. He knew what it was like. He knew what it was like to be humiliated, to have a bag put over his head and have men punch him in the face and then say, prophesy to us and tell us who, who hit you. To feel their spit run down his face. To be completely mocked and utterly beaten to death and crucified on the cross, naked in complete humiliation. Now, it's that Christ who inspires, who sends the Spirit to say through Paul, tell them the sufferings of this life 
are not worthy to be compared with the glory to be revealed. That's what He sends the Spirit to do for you and for me to fix our hope outside this present earthly pattern and say, this isn't it. To move us beyond where we are. And He does this all the time. The theme's picked up again in Galatians 5.5. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Why do Christians wait for that? Why do, we, why do we fix our hope on that? Only because the Spirit is within us. Without Him, we would never dream of thinking that way or living that way. Or Ephesians 4.4. 4, There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. You see, it's the Spirit who who puts that hope in us and and fixes us on what's yet to come. And non-Christians look at us and they scratch their heads and say, that is the height of foolishness to fix your hope on something you have no proof of. And we look back and say, no, we've got proof. We've got an empty tomb. And we've got the witness of the Spirit within who is constantly revealing to us and making us know this is true, this is real, this is authentic. This really is where we're supposed to live. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that's to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. You see that? The whole creation waits for it. He's talking about the, the physical universe, this globe and everything around it, that, that this universe in which we live. It, it's, it's groaning, waiting eagerly for the revealing, for that hope that's finally to be shown in us and through us. For the creation was subjected to futility, to emptiness. God created everything good, and then He cursed it, and in cursing it, it means it will have an end. We read it in Psalm 102. The the heavens are like garments that will be taken up and changed. They're they're not going to remain the way they are forever. Something's going to happen. And He subjected it to futility. Why? He says so. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. It's not the created order that sinned. It's man only. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. In hope of what? That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In hope, we look back at the Garden of Eden and we see Adam and Eve sinning there and God says, in the day that you eat of the tree, you will surely die. But in that death is both judgment and deliverance. Because if man didn't die, he could never be changed. His misery would end. That's the point. And so the creation is subjected to futility. It's running down because God has a hope for it. He would not leave it forever in its corrupted state. And that's exactly what He's saying to us. We need to know that. And to be honest, Christian, you and I forget this, don't we? We just take this out of the, out of the mix when we're going through trial and tribulation. 1 Corinthians 2, the Apostle expands on this this whole idea even more. And he says, talking about the fact that we have a wisdom here that the world just can't possibly understand. And in verse 4 of chapter 2, he says, My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power, that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is where we rest. This hope only is present in us because of the Spirit, the power of God. And yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Those who know Christ, this is wisdom to us. Although it's not a wisdom of this age, or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret, hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Now, none of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him, these things God has revealed to us. How? 
through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Oh, when we lose sight of the fact that our hope and everything is to be fixed on Him, that is the Spirit's ministry. We need to go back and, and, and ask Him to restore that in us, to move us again in that direction. Say, oh yeah, that's, that's how I'm supposed to live. The Spirit works in us by, by revealing to us the hope of glory and making it a reality so that we can live life in the light of it. That's His ministry to you and to me. I think sometimes we refuse that ministry. I think sometimes we'd rather just not pay attention because we kind of like to pity ourselves. We enjoy wallowing in the trouble. No. The Spirit's work is to reveal it to us and to put a longing in our hearts for it. But not just there. He doesn't only reveal the hope of glory to us. He produces the present groaning in us. Verses 22 through 25. He produces the present groaning. And we do groan, don't we? Look at verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The entire created order is in paroxysms of pain because of the, the subjection of it to futility because of the fall. That's, that's why we have floods and famines and earthquakes and tornadoes and tsunamis and everything else that comes with it. The earth is groaning and saying this, something's horribly wrong. This world order isn't the way it ought to be. And we know that instinctively. And if the creation itself groans that way, keep reading. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Well, what about us? We groan inwardly as we eagerly, as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The whole creation is lying under His wrath, and we groan for what ought to be. We know this isn't right. And the Christian comes to understand more and more the longer we live in this world how truly out of whack this present world is. We've gotten used to the ideas of murder and death and godlessness and strife and deception, immorality and cruelty, divorce and war, bondage to sin, rape and genocide and Hatred and violence and famine and pain and loneliness and abandonment and indwelling sin. We've, we've come to view this as the normal state of affairs. Beloved, it isn't. And don't you instinctively begin to groan and say, this is so wrong. It's just wrong. It's not the way God made it. We groan. That's the Spirit who makes you groan under that weight. Even the creation does it by itself, but we especially, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan. It gives real meaning to, to the, all the categories of suffering, but especially when we think of it in terms of we don't groan just for this to end, we groan for something else to be. Often when we forget that, when, when the Spirit is not in a person, and sometimes when we muffle His voice, but you wonder why the world turns to suicide. Because they're groaning. And they want to end the pain. We've all felt that at one time or another. I just want it to stop. But the Spirit leads the Christian beyond that and says, no, you don't just want it to stop. You want the glory that is to be yours at the resurrection when you're revealed to all creation as a son of God. A whole different paradigm. He calls us to it. He, he puts the groaning in us. The reason why you and I groan so much, why we're so disturbed by what we see in the newspapers and, and on CNN and every place else is because we're yearning to be clothed upon. In 2 Corinthians 5, the apostle writes, For we know that if the tent, which is our earthly home, is destroyed... 
We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. We don't want to just end this. For while we're still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we should be unclothed, but that we should be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. And He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us His Spirit as a guarantee. Why do you long for it? Because the Spirit is in you. That's why you groan. The greatness, I can say, of what awaits us is betrayed by the depth of our groaning now. The reason why we groan so much now is because what ought to be is so much better. The greater our groaning becomes, the more we realize it. God subjected the creation to futility and end so that He might make it new and not leave it like this forever. Death was a sentence, but it was also a means to bring an end to the fall's destruction. And here, look, look, look at the next phrase that he uses. And not only are the creation, verse 23, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, that final placement and declaration of who we are the redemption of our bodies, the resurrection. For in this hope we were saved. This is, this is what he was after. And now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? Oh, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And he likens that, that groaning to childbirth. Go back to 22. For we groan... For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. Now, I've, I've never given birth. That may shock some of you. I've never had that experience. But enough of you here have. And I've seen enough movies that I know that there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth sometimes at birth. There's pain. There's difficulty. After... As we went through the process of Sarah being born, there were, there were bite marks and bruises on my body. Broken limbs and foul names heaped in my direction. Oh, but the, the moment she was born and laid on her mother's breast, oh, the pain gave way to such glory. And he's saying, Christian, that's what the Spirit builds in you. This pain is going to give Give forth such great glory when it's done. Oh, what He has for us. Better than a baby. But that's, that's the best He can come up with. The Spirit shows us by this how, what tremendous joy and relief and, and, and isn't it worth it-ness to the groaning we go through now. But not only does He unveil the glorious hope and illumine the present distress in us, look at 26 through 27. And this, this just continues to build and build and get richer and richer. He sustains us by His personal intercession. So, so in the first, in revealing the, the, the glorious hope to us, that's the ministry of the Spirit, and then... And then producing the, the present groaning in us so that we, so that we don't love this dirt ball called earth, but love heaven more. So that we understand that this is just, this is a, a really defiled and broken place. And there's wholeness and holiness and perfect beauty to be had. Not only does he do that, but while we're in this condition, he sustains us. By his personal intercession. Look at his words in 26. And likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Well, what is our weakness? He states it in the next phrase. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. Haven't you ever been there? Where you've been so weary, or so despondent, or so sick, or 
so upset or so perplexed that you just didn't know what to pray for? Oh, I go there regularly. This, I needed this very passage this morning. At 6 o'clock this morning as I rehearsed this passage, I melted and said, thank you that you supply my weakness because you pray for me. Did you know he's interceding for you? Do you know that? Do you know the nature of that intercession? I mean, we just don't know how to pray appropriately given the dynamics of this struggle with sin and the world that's around us and, and all of the stuff that's, that's built into it. For those, for, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. It's the desire of all of us to be known. To have somebody who really knows us in the depths of who we are. In the full recesses. We, we strive for it in personal relationships. Often, uh, I think, we, we yearn because the pain of just not being understood is so difficult. Or of being alone and not really known deep down. But the truth is, we can't know each other that way. No matter how well we know the other person, we'll never know them entirely. It's too vast. There's too much there. It's too deep. Even if you could communicate all that is in you, whether or not the other person or other people around you could fully comprehend it is, is greatly in question. We can't. One of the things that I fear most is being too well known. Because deep down inside, I, I, I think in twisted ways. And I don't want everybody to know some of those goofy things going on in my brain. My wife will tell you the terror she lives in when she discovers them. She'll be glad to tell you there's some spooky stuff going on in there. And, and we, we're, we're all like that. We've got things inside we don't want anybody to know. And then depths in us that we do want someone to know. And I tell you, He sends the Spirit that He might know you entirely. Everything. And not recoil. And not run screaming. But embrace you and intercede for you at every point that you have need. And how does he intercede? Does he sit down and write out a nice, neat little prayer? He groans. He groans. Because He feels your need more deeply than you do. Bill Clinton said, I feel your pain. He lied. He could barely feel his own. The Holy Spirit's the one who feels our pain. He indwells us so that He knows. He knows that loneliness the moment we feel it because He feels it in us. That disappointment, that confusion, that doubt, that fear, that abandonment, that, and our joy and our exhilaration. He feels all of it. And the, the amazing thing is that He then intercedes for us, goes before the Father and prays for us because we're too weak to know what we should be praying for and all those things, but He knows it exactly with divine precision. He knows everything we need, and He groans so deeply, it's unutterable. For God to utter it is too deep. That's how you're being interceded for. You think nobody cares, you think nobody prays for you, I've got news for you. The Holy Spirit's praying for you with groanings that are so deep, with paroxysms that are so, so deep, that He cannot even release them in audible form. Oh, beloved. That's what the Christian has. That's why He sent the Spirit for us. 
that we might know that we have absolutely perfect intercession. Confronted with a situation right now, a loved one in trouble, something else going on, and you say, I don't even know what to pray for in this one. And he says, I do. I know exactly. I know exactly. Oh, the wonder of him being able to indwell us and to minister for us and to us in that capacity. Doug Moo really labors to unpack this. Let me me read just a few more verses and then read a quote from him. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches the hearts, now that's a reference to the Father, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because only He can know the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Let me untangle that. Doug Moo writes, the reason for this effectiveness of the Spirit's intercession is the perfect accord that exists between God, the one who searches the heart, and the mind of the Spirit. There's a perfect accord between them. God who sees into the inner being of people where the indwelling Spirit's ministry of intercession takes place knows, acknowledges, and responds to those intentions of the Spirit that are expressed in His prayers on our behalf. God knows what the Spirit intends, and there's perfect harmony between the two because it's in accordance with God's will that the Spirit intercedes for the saints. The Father sends Him so that He can indwell us and know us perfectly, and by doing that will, prays and intercedes for us because that's what the Father wants Him to do on our behalf. You see this divine conspiracy to make sure that we're provided for through the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. Moo goes on to draw a great comparison. There is one in heaven, the Son of God, who intercedes on our behalf, defending us from all charges that might be brought against us and guaranteeing salvation in the day of judgment. Oh, but there is also, Paul asserts in these verses, an intercessor in us, the Spirit of God who effectively prays to the Father on our behalf throughout the difficulties and uncertainties of our lives here on earth. You worried that nobody's praying for you? If no human being ever uttered a word on your behalf before the throne, the Spirit of God indwells you and pleads with the Father, knowing the depth of every need better than you can possibly imagine. Now, based on that, he then says, here's his conclusion to that. Therefore, verse 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Did you catch the connection? Why is it that all things work together for the good? to those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose, because the Spirit intercedes for us. That's why. That's why it can't be messed up. Now, if you're not a Christian here this morning, if you don't know Christ, that statement is not true. All things are not working together for the good for you. They're not. You have an enemy who has conspired to keep you away from the gospel, to keep your heart blind to keep your your eyes from seeing the truth, to keep your ears from hearing it, to keep your heart from receiving it. He's laboring so that you will perish in a Christless eternity. There is a world that is marshalling its forces against you. And the way it does it is it builds a system that is so enticing, so entrapping, so delightful, so so attractive that you want to live in this system for the rest of your days and take advantage of it and plunder it for everything you can get out of it. And you've got your own flesh that desires sin and loves it and wants to stay... And let sin be master over your life so that you can just enjoy what you want to enjoy. And the end of that is death. Eternal death. All things will not work together for, you, for good for you. Right now, they are working together for your eternal destruction. But believer, 
because the Spirit intercedes for you, all those things that are marshaled against you, in the Holy Spirit's prayer for you, as He cries out to the Father for you, He guarantees that every one of them will be used to bless you instead of destroy you. Everyone. Because the Spirit prays. Because He intercedes. Because He prays according to what He searches out in the depths of your soul in complete compatibility with the mind of the Father. What a glorious salvation. That's why we know they'll all work together for the good. To those who are who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And then in verses 28 through 30, He opens up to us then that it's the Spirit who accomplishes God's ultimate purpose in us. The Spirit is the one who accomplishes God's ultimate purpose in us. So look at this in verse 29. For those whom He foreknew, now that's speaking of God the Father, and that's referring specifically to the concept of election. He's going to unpack that for us in the next chapter. So we won't do it now. I'll just let you know that the word foreknew there is not a word that that intimates the idea that he simply had some sort of static knowledge of something that was yet going to happen, like God looked down the pipeline of time and saw what you would do and then responded to you. No, it's the same word that's translated, the same root word, that's translated in Genesis about Adam and Eve when it says that Adam knew his wife. It it intimates relationship, a pre-existing relationship, that there is a love relationship that God has. And out of that love relationship is where where salvation springs. Now, as I said, Paul's going to unpack that for us later, so we won't spend the time there. Here, he wants us to see the chain. He wants us to see how the Spirit works. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Every child of God has a destiny. You don't make up your own. You don't create your own. There's a radio program I listen to on a fairly regular basis. And and the name of the, the show is Viewpoint. And so in order for him to kind of capitalize on the name of his show, he begins each show by saying, Viewpoint determines destiny. No, it does not. God determines destiny. And here, especially for the Christian, he predestines us. He has a destiny for you, child of God. And that destiny is spelled out. It's to be conformed to the image of his Son, to have the character of Christ formed in you. That's that's what God intends for you. That's where he's taking you. That's why the Spirit intercedes for you. He has that goal in mind. And he knows that's where the Father wants to take you. And so he prays accordingly, sometimes in the exact opposite direction you pray. Because he's more interested in bringing you to that image than he is maybe giving you satin sheets on your bed. Eternal glories to be had. And so those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That's God's eternal plan has been all along. Salvation isn't plan B. And what about those whom he foreknew and predestined? Well, look, look at, the, at the work that the Holy Spirit does. And those whom he predestined, he also called. That's the work of the Spirit, to call men, both in general and to produce in our hearts the faith to respond to the call. But it's the Spirit who, who sends us out into all the world, cr- crying out with the gospel. Come to Christ and be reconciled. That's the, the Spirit of God calling to everyone. At the same time, there's an effectual call where He quickens the heart and the soul by that call. And that's the Spirit's work. That's what He does. And so again, what we read last week, Revelation twenty-two seventeen, the Spirit and the bride say, Come! The Spirit is the one who calls. And those who God foreknew and predestined, He calls. He calls. And brings in. Without fail. Never missing a one. Because the Spirit's the one who, who does that calling. And not only does He call, those whom He called, He also justified. Now, we don't ordinarily connect the Spirit's ministry with justification, but... but He is connected with justification. 
1 Corinthians 6.11, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. How? By the Spirit of our God. It's the Spirit who applies the justifying work of Christ to the individual. That's His ministry to us. He calls us and quickens and creates faith in our heart and applies to us that justifying work of Christ at Calvary. That's what He does. Titus 3.5 again, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of who? The Holy Spirit. That's the Spirit's working. To justify us, to cleanse us, to, that we might be pronounced righteous before God, based on what? The blood of Christ. But it's the Spirit who does that work, who, who brings it home to us. Ah, Again, verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Isn't that awesome? There's the chain. That's the unbroken chain. It can't be controverted, it can't be upset, it can't be thwarted, it can't be broken. He foreknows, he predestines, he calls, he justifies, and he glorifies. That's the, that's the process of salvation. He's given you a peek behind the curtain so you see some of it from eternity past. And then some of it worked out in the present day. But it isn't, it's interesting, and you've got to note this, that he uses that in the past tense. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Why didn't he say, and those who he justified, he will glorify? There's good reason. It may be that what he has in mind is that Christ is already glorified, and because we're in him, we're glorified. We've yet to take on the redemption of our bodies. As he mentions earlier in the chapter, there's, there's still a fullness of that to come, but we're in Christ, and, and since He's already ascended to the throne and is in His full glory, and we're in Him, we're glorified. But I think He means something a little different than that. Not less than that, but a little different and maybe a little more. I don't know if any of you ever saw the movie Dead Man Walking. Very powerful portrayal of a man who was convicted of a murder and rape and was on death row. Uh, the story in and of itself is fascinating and controversial, but it opens up a tradition that occurs on many death rows in America. And that is that on the night when the perpetrator was to be executed, after he had his last meal, they opened the cell door to guide him down to the execution chamber. And as soon as he exited his cell, all of the other men on death row stood and one called out, dead man walking. Dead man walking. Because he was as good as dead. It was irreversible. There was no turning back. There was no reprieve, no pardon, nothing. It was done. They said, dead man walking. Paul says, whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. And those he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified are live men walking, going to glory. It's as good as done. It can't be reversed. It can't be changed. It can't be thwarted. And it's so absolute that He can refer to us as already glorified because we're in Christ. Now, beloved, that's amazing. Now, what does the Spirit do? He applies that to us. He works from the beginning of that to, to, to give us that sense of the hope of glory. And at the same time, creates in us a groaning so that we are not able to be satisfied with this present order. And in that great groaning, then prays on our behalf and intercedes for us with words that could not conceivably be uttered. 
And all that as He's working in us His effectual calling and justifying us with the blood of the Lamb and bringing us to glory so that we're already considered sons of God. Oh, Holy Spirit, how we need Your ministry. Oh, how we need that ministry. And therefore, we really do know all things work together for the good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. It's already done. Now, of course, all of this, all of this is because of Christ. And as we close, I just want you to see three quick things there. Now you understand a little bit of why Jesus in John 16 says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. Because we need this. We need this ministry of the Spirit all the time. And beloved, I think we need to pay attention to this ministry of the Spirit. Many of us have just kind of forgotten about it. We've not even looked for it. We've not tuned our eyes and our ears to behold what it is He's saying. And He's ministering this way all the time. It's why Paul in another place, I love the way the NIV puts it, we have in the old King James, do not quench the Spirit. The NIV has a wonderful way of translating that. It says, don't throw dirt on the Spirit's fire. We do that, don't we? By plugging into all sorts of things around us so that we're deaf to these ministrations while He's speaking and leading and guiding all the time building in us a hope for glory. The truth is we'd rather cling to this dirt ball called earth. We love it. He says, no, it's not where you want to live. Secondly, I want you to see the conspiracy of blessing that every member of the Trinity conspires with the other to bring blessing in the promise, in the law, in the cross, in Christ's resurrection, in Pentecost, In our resurrection, the Father has a hand in all of it. The Son has a hand in all of it. The Spirit has a hand in all of it. Because the triune God has conspired to bring about the glory of this salvation for you and for me. If you don't know Christ this morning, that's that's what we're laying before you. That's what we're telling you. He invites you to come and have forgiveness. Freedom. The knowledge that that the Spirit will indwell you and intercede for you. Hmm. And lastly, you just need to see how certain these things are. That the the chain is, is unbreakable. That the process is incontrovertible. That no power in heaven and earth can thwart it. He's going to really emphasize that when you get down to the end of the chapter. That it's, this is God at work. And this salvation is so extraordinary and so mighty. Some of you have thought at times, will I make it? Will I hang on? Do I have hope? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Because, because those who He calls, He justifies. And who He justifies, He glorifies. You'll make it. You're as good as glorified already. Although you're not not nearly as good as you'll be when you're glorified. Oh, what a gracious God. The ministry of the Spirit to the believer just in this. And we need to live on these four pillars. Make sure we don't let them go. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for this time together in Your Word. We thank You for the promises that are unfolded for us, for the the incredible reality when I stop and contemplate what it means that Your Spirit indwells me and my fellow believers so that knowing our deepest recesses, knowing our most hidden sins and the needs that we cannot even articulate, knowing that You pray for those, that they aren't left unaddressed, that You send Your Spirit to search us out. And according to Your will, He finds them. And He, and he groans. 
knowing our pain, knowing our condition. And He groans to you and you hear Him and you work in us relentlessly, sometimes silently, often without any awareness on our part, but but never ceasing to bring about the glory of that image of Christ in us till every fiber of our being reflects His character and shows His holiness and His beauty and His wonder. Oh, I thank you for those promises. That is why we can trust that all things will work together for the good. Because you certainly are never slack, never careless, never thoughtless, never erring in your prayers on our behalf. Thank you. Thank you. And Holy Spirit, while you're here among us, while you're touching and ministering to the hearts of your own people right here, right now. While you're reminding them how good you are and while you're stirring in them again the hope of glory, while you're helping them come to grips again with who they are in Christ because of your work, while you're producing in them a groaning that says, I don't want this, I want what God has promised. While you're doing that, will you also open the hearts of unbelievers here? Oh, will you unstop their deaf ears? Will you take the scales off their blind eyes? Will you open their hearts and let them see Him in His glory and be forgiven in the blood of the Lamb and cleansed and made new? reconciled to the Father. Will you do that this very moment, Holy Spirit? Oh, you, you can work in ways we never dreamed. And hearts that have professed to know you for decades are still cold and hard, just going through the motions. Break them. Melt them. Open them. Save them by Your sovereign work today. Let them see Christ and Him crucified and flee to that place that they might know forgiveness and reconciliation. Oh, Father, we pray that. Holy Spirit, we pray that. Blessed Jesus, we pray that. Have Your way in us today. We we plead in Jesus' name. Amen.